Hey, it's Guy here. Over the past year, a lot of the founders who come on the show have told me how hard it is to ask for money. They have to sell their product or idea as an amazing investment, make it clear how they're going to use the money, give an impassioned pitch, but still risk getting door after door slammed in their face. And when people do give, friends, family, angel investors, VCs, whomever, our founders are overwhelmed with relief and gratitude. Well, before the end of what has been a pretty trying year for a lot of us, I would like to ask each of you to show your generosity and your appreciation for what we do by giving to your local NPR station. Many of you listen to the show from your favorite podcast app, but How I Built This is also a radio show that plays on NPR stations around the U.S. And those stations, along with our sponsors, directly support the work we do. So if you love this show and the stories we tell... I'm giving you my best pitch, so please be among the friends and family who give to our show by giving to your local member station. You can go to donate.npr.org built and give directly to a local NPR station. That's donate.npr.org built. And thanks. Hey, everyone. So as some of you may know, over the break, we heard the sad news about the death of Tony Shea, the co-founder and longtime head of Zappos. When I interviewed Tony three years ago on the show, I have to admit it was one of the hardest interviews I'd done at that point. And not because Tony was difficult or belligerent or evasive. To the contrary, he was kind and polite and genuinely sweet. The problem was that Tony had such a hard time talking about his achievements and his incredible vision for how to run a business. He was so modest and so humble, I literally had to beg him to brag a little. But in the end, we were able to pull out an incredible story from Tony. And as so many of you know, Tony Shea wasn't a shoe salesman, even though that's what Zappos is known for. Tony was a customer service salesman. He rewrote the playbook on how to treat customers and employees, and he inspired legions of founders and CEOs to come visit Zappos to learn how to replicate his model. Tony Shea was just 46 when he passed away this week, and we wanted to honor him by re-airing this episode that first ran back in January of 2017. As Zappos was growing, it was also losing more money, and we also need more money for inventory. And so all of this was happening at a bad time in terms of the uh, dot-com crash back in 2000. So it was pretty much impossible to raise money from anyone. You could not get an outside investment? No. And, and also, even if someone wanted to invest in an internet company, the last thing they wanted to do was invest in an online shoe company because no one would ever buy shoes online. From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. I'm Guy Raz, and on today's show, how old-school mail-order catalogs inspired Tony Shea to build one of the world's biggest online shoe retailers. You know it as Zappos, and it's worth billions. 
I read that you you only have four pairs of shoes. Is that uh, is that right? Yeah, roughly, maybe maybe fewer now. Wow. What what, what kind of shoes are you wearing uh, now? Right now, I'm wearing black Asics, and then mm-hmm. I have a pair of flip flops that I wear and. Yeah, those are the only two pairs. <laughs> right. um, I'm actually not passionate about shoes at all. Uh, I'm passionate about customer service and company culture, so I can talk forever about those two things, but I can't say anything about shoes. Okay, so as you just heard, one of the most successful shoe salesmen in the world doesn't care about shoes. And also, he's really quiet. He's uh, he's an introvert. Right, definitely. So how do you cope with it? I mean, you have a huge company, like... When you've got to talk to lots of people and inspire them, like how do you find the energy to do that? I'm probably different from a lot of typical CEOs where uh, I, I like to use the analogy of imagine a greenhouse where maybe at a typical company, the CEO might be the strongest and tallest, most charismatic plant that all the other plants strive to one day become maybe. Yeah. And for me, I really think of my role as more about being the architect of the greenhouse and then the all, all the plants inside will flourish and, and thrive on their own mm-hmm. and so from a I guess company perspective I try to surround myself with people that are just naturally more extroverted yeah and and uh, probably I guess a little a little bit weird too because I, I heard that when you apply to Zappos you actually you're asked how weird you are I believe so yeah the, I, I think our Application form evolves, but as far as I know, that question is still there. Oh, so on a scale of 1 to 10, how weird are you? I would say maybe an (laughs) 8. Okay, there you have it. Tony Shea, the the guy who built this huge company with more than a 1,000 employees, doesn't really like shoes. He's an 8 on the weird scale and an introvert. And yet... People who study companies and company culture come from all over the world to Zappos, to to its headquarters in Las Vegas, to see how it operates. Because as many of you know, at Zappos, there are no typical bosses. Employees have a lot of autonomy to make decisions. But at the same time, there's an obsessiveness about customer service. In fact, as you will hear, Zappos doesn't even think of itself as a shoe company, but basically as a company that sells good customer service. And the story of how Tony got there begins, as these stories often do, in childhood. My parents were your typical Asian-American parents. They were always making sure that I was practicing piano and violin and other instruments. And during the summers, for example, practice one hour piano, one hour violin. And, And this is, you know, as a kid, summer vacation. And so I would actually get up super early and... I would actually just play back a recording of myself playing the piano or violin. Wait, you would play a recording of you practicing the violin to give your parents the impression that you were actually practicing the violin? Right, So because they were sleeping, but they could hear. So um, so that was my way around that. That's like a Ferris Bueller move. <laughs> and strangely, every week when I went to piano lessons or violin lessons, I never <laughs> improved. And so the teachers wow. did not understand why. <laughs> So anyway, Tony eventually goes off to college. He graduates in the mid-1990s. And it's not like he goes right into starting Zappos. At first, he goes to work for Oracle as a low-level programmer. Yep. I wasn't there for very long. I I think I was there for five months, and it's just straight out of college. And the actual work I was assigned to do was pretty boring. And this was right about when 
the internet or the World Wide Web started because I remember it didn't even really exist I don't think the summer before or at least two summers before and at the time these web design and hosting agencies were popping up left and right and so Sanjay my college roommate and I decided to do that on the side while we were both our day jobs were at Oracle but during lunch breaks and at night would go start selling and designing websites for different local small businesses so you guys were like doing a side hustle yeah and then we had this idea for uh, at the time advertising on online was very very rare and, and right you know today if you go to any website you'll you'll see ads all over the place but back in the day if you went to a website and it had an advertisement on it it was actually kind of a badge of honor because only the really big websites like Yahoo would have advertising customers okay so wait so you guys were trying to to build a like a web-based ad sales company well Originally, we didn't really actually intend to start it out as businesses. More of one of those things where we're bored and we're thinking, okay, well, let's try this and see what happens. And so we literally just contacted a hundred random websites that we thought were interesting. And like, how would you even contact them? We would just email them because back then people would put their email addresses. Oh, or, on the website. Say something like, yeah, on the website, it'd be like webmaster at oh, right. com. What was your pitch when you would email them? Basically that we're trying this thing out and if you just put this little piece of code into your website, banners will start showing up and in exchange, you send us your banner and it will make sure that it's showing up on other websites doing the same thing. And that was that was it. We, we weren't really trying to pitch, I guess. We yeah. were more just, we're doing this experiment. Do you want to participate? Okay, so, so just so I understand, you, you basically got like a, a lot of small websites to, to join a, a kind of a network and then agree to run ads on their sites. Yep. And then and then you were like the middleman, right? You sold those spaces on websites to, to companies that wanted to advertise? Yeah. Wow. So this was like incredibly good timing. Yeah. Over two and a half years, we ended up growing the company, which was called Link Exchange, to about 100 or so people. And then ultimately ended up selling the company to Microsoft in 1998 for $265 million. Okay, first of all, Tony, this is not how this narrative is supposed to go. <laughs> I mean, you were so young. I mean, this is just three years after you graduated from college. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, was that totally overwhelming that that, that that happened so quickly? Well, the whole thing definitely seemed very surreal. But at the same time, what a lot of people don't know is the real reason why we ended up selling the company and... The real reason was because the company culture had gone completely downhill, and I myself dreaded getting out of bed in the morning to go to my own company, which is kind of a weird feeling. Because when it was just five or ten of us, and we were all friends, it was a lot of fun. We were kind of your typical dot-com startup back then. We were sleeping under our desks, had no idea what day of the week it was, working around the clock, but it was really exciting and it was fun growing and as we started hiring more and more people we eventually ran out of either friends or friends of friends and so I had to do figure out how to do interviews and, and so on and not everyone we hired was good for our culture and by the time we got to 100 people it wasn't any one specific hire it was just death by a thousand or in this case a hundred paper cuts and that's really what led to the sale so so wait what did you just like cashed out and moved on? Well, in Silicon Valley, usually there's a four-year, what's known as a four-year vesting for your stock. And I'd only been there for two and a half years. So really had to stay for another year and a half after Microsoft acquired us in order to get the full amount of 
what the deal was structured for, but I ended up actually just walking away from that where I, I guess I could have easily just sat around for, for a year and a half, but I was ready to move on to the next thing. So just to just be clear, you, you could have made much more money if you had stayed for like just another year and a half, but you walked away because you were miserable? Yeah, I, I think I just started going down the path of just trying to make sure that I'm being true to myself and doing things because it's what I want to do versus what is maybe a status symbol or what society ex- expects me to do. I mean, the one resource that we all ultimately have the same constraints on our time. So I didn't want to be wasting time. Okay, so fair enough. You, you part ways with Link Exchange. Uh, and, and then I read that you uh, like opened an incubator, like where you invested in other companies. Yeah, it was called Venture Frogs. And we raised about $27 million. I'd say roughly half of that was my money. And then the other half was from other early Link Exchange employees that were, had money from the acquisition. And for me, when I first got started in that, my, my thinking was, oh, this will be lots of fun. We'll get exposure to lots of different founders and different internet companies. Yeah. And, but what I realized was that for me, I actually found that investing was pretty boring and I felt like I was sitting on the sidelines all the time. And I really miss being part of building something. So, so how did you, how, like, how did Zappos even get on your radar? Like, how, how did that happen? It almost actually didn't get on our radar because I remember getting a voicemail from the founder of Zappos, Nick Swinmurn, and he said he had this idea for selling shoes online. And we were getting random pitches every day. And so to me, it seemed like the poster child of bad internet ideas. Who's going to actually try on shoes without seeing them in, in person? Yeah. And right before hitting the delete button on, on the phone, uh, he threw out a couple facts that made us change our mind. One was that footwear at the time was a $40 billion a year industry in the U.S. Yeah. And I'm not into shoes at all, so that was news to me. And then the other interesting fact was that at the time, mail order catalogs, those paper catalogs, that was actually the fastest growing segment of the footwear industry in the U.S. And that represented 5%, so $2 billion a year and growing. And there's clear proof that people are willing to remotely try on shoes. And so in our minds, we thought, okay, the World Wide Web, the, the internet is going to be much bigger than just paper order catalogs. And so that's what made us ultimately decide to invest. Okay, so so when uh, when the founder of, of Zappos, Nick Sw- Swinburne, uh, came to meet you guys for the first time, what what was your impression of him? He just seemed like a pretty casual guy. But we basically just said, since you, Nick, don't have any footwear background, we'll invest if you can find a shoe guy. Turns out that there was a shoe guy named Fred Mosler who was working at Nordstrom at the time, and he told Nick, "I'll join if you find an investor." And so uh, we all met and. Ultimately, Fred ended up joining the company and been working with Fred ever since. Wow. So so at what point did you realize that you know you want to be more than just a passive investor, that you wanted to be involved in the company? Um, there wasn't really any one moment in time. It was more we were also running an incubator at the time, and Zappos ended up moving in and all in the same building. And so we just started being able to help them more and it just slowly just evolved. But it it was a gradual thing. It wasn't like one day wasn't really helping and the next day was full time. Hmm. And and this was like a time when people were still kind of freaked out about using credit cards online, right? So 
in in the first year of that company, were you actually selling shoes? Yeah, I mean, so in order to test out the whole concept for real, Nick would actually just go down to the local shoe store, take pictures of all the shoes that were on the wall, and then put it on the website. And if someone bought something, then go down to the local shoe store, <laughs> buy the buy. shoe, and then <laughs> and ship it. And obviously, not making money from each of those, but it was really a, a really cheap and easy way to test the actual demand. So that's how you would get you would sort of gauge what people are interested in. Or, more importantly, just whether they'd buy shoes online at all. Yeah, and then over time we learned what brands they were interested in and then eventually got to the point where we wanted to make money. And so... Wait, wait, but just, I mean, you, you must have been, like, burning through cash at, at this point. So how, how are you funding the company? Yeah, I, I mean, so after the Link Exchange sale, I set some money aside for investing and also bought a bunch of apartments or lofts that were in that same building. In, in San Francisco? Yeah, this was right in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and basically, as Zappos was growing, it was also losing more money, and we also need more money for inventory. And so I ended up, one by one, selling off the apartments in Huh. It's kind of like when in Monopoly, when you, you buy a hotel or houses <laughs> yeah. and then you have to sell them, but yes. you lose money on the sale. Yeah. Uh, that's basically what, what happened. So, How many apartments did you have to sell? All of them, eventually. Um, wow. I mean, you must have really believed this thing was going to work. Yeah, well, so all of this was happening at a bad time in terms of the uh, dot-com crash back in 2000. So it was pretty much impossible to raise money from anyone and there was also 9-11 and a uh, war. And basically, it was just a bad economic environment, and especially right. in right. Silicon Valley. You could not get an outside investment? No. And, and also, there were huge companies like Pets.com that were e-commerce that were kind of imploding at the time. And so even if someone wanted to invest in an internet company, the last thing they wanted to do was invest in an online shoe company because... No one would ever buy shoes online. When we come back in a moment, the secret sauce that helped Zappos blow up and a hint, it had nothing to do with shoes. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Oliver Wyman. Believing business success is a series of small decisions punctuated by breakthrough moments. Learn how their expertise, creativity, and diversity creates breakthroughs for the world's leading companies at oliverwyman.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from McDonald's, proudly serving communities since 1965. From birthday parties to little league after game hangouts, everyone's been to McDonald's. It's more than just a place to get tasty, affordable food. It's a place where friends and families from the community come together. And because the majority of restaurants are run by independent franchisees, McDonald's has deep roots in communities. Show support for your community the next time you walk into a local McDonald's. I'm loving it. Support for How I Built This comes from 3M, from helping drive vaccine and therapy development with advanced purification technologies to developing an adjuvant that helps boost vaccine effectiveness. 
the research scientists at 3M are delivering innovative healthcare solutions to help us today and prepare us to better tackle what's next. Learn more at 3M.com slash improving lives. 3M science applied to life. It's How I Built This from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So it's the early 2000s and Zappos is struggling. The economy isn't doing well. And basically at this time, Tony Shea is funding the company with his own money. And he's doing that by selling off a bunch of apartments that he owns. So fair to say, this was not a good time for the company. I mean, every week or two, we had to make the choice between do we make payroll or do we pay half of our vendors or do we sell another apartment? But you can't just sell an apartment overnight either. So did you actually have to lay people off in those early days? Yeah, within the first uh, couple of years, just the reality of you know, we really are out of cash and we're out of options. And so had to do a layoff just to keep the company going. So, so how did you guys even begin to turn it around? I mean, how did you get to a place where you were able to make it sustainable? I think for us, a big turning point was really deciding we wanted to build our brand to be about the very best customer service and customer experience. That wasn't baked into the model from the beginning that, that came later? Yeah. So in the beginning, we always wanted to offer good service, but it wasn't until we decided we wanted to build our that's what we actually wanted our brand that, to be about. That's the mm-hmm. most important thing. It led us to do a lot of things that would not have made any sense if that wasn't our North Star. And so uh, examples would be offering free shipping both ways because that's obviously very expensive to, to do. And um, you know, if we were just around trying to, say, maximize the profit margins, then we never would have gone down that path. And yes, we would have made more money in the short term during those days, but then we wouldn't have built our brand and reputation and so on. And so I think, you know, when when you actually want your brand to stand for something or to have some sort of purpose, and in our case, it's about to be about the very best customer service and customer experience, you do things that are kind of nonsensical in, in some ways and that your competition would never do. Yeah. So, so, I mean, there was a point where you really just defined yourself like this is, you know, this is what sets our company apart. Yeah. And, and there's actually a phrase that um, I think one of the employees in our call center actually came up with started describing us as we're a service company that just happens to sell shoes. And, hmm. and so for us, that's we're hoping 10, 20 years from now, people won't even realize we started selling shoes online. And I can imagine one day there could be a Zappos Airlines or Zappos Hotel that is really just about the very best customer service and customer experience. Do you do Zappos uh, cable TV? That'd be great. I need that. We are open to anything where service can be a differentiator. Okay, so Zappos uh, becomes this huge deal. And then like at your peak, I guess in 2009, uh, you sell to Amazon. Why? Yeah, so Amazon had actually approached us several years before 2009, they just wanted to acquire us, and and then basically the company being acquired ends up joining the mothership and um, and kind of loses its, its original identity. And so we said no very quickly. And then they actually, in the years in between then and 2009, they launched a competitor called Endless, 
And it was basically launched from our perspective to compete with us. And ultimately, if they weren't going to be able to acquire us, then they wanted to essentially compete and, and, and win. Right. And so they tried that for a while, but we continued to grow. And so I think after several years of them, I'm assuming, I don't know the details of losing lots of money, trying to gain market share through Endless, they approached us again and said, okay, we will let you guys be your own separate subsidiary with your own separate culture and own separate way of doing business. And hmm. happy to report seven years later, they've remained totally true to their word. And we've been able to continue doing our own thing. And our culture is very different and distinct from Amazon's. And, and so from our point of view, it was really just as if we swapped out our prior board of directors with a new one. Why do you think that, I mean, if at times Zappos was like a week away from going under and and there was just a lifeline that came through every time, whether you sold an apartment or some money came in, why do you think it 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 made it? Do you think it was it was luck or do you think you guys were just really good at what you were doing? I'd say it was probably mostly luck. What's interesting is that I, I, Jim Collins is... Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of his latest book, Great by Choice, I think. And he actually has this acronym ROL, Return on Luck. And he looked at whether companies, how much of a role did luck play in companies that did well and companies that didn't do well. And in his research and analysis, he actually found that good companies and bad companies, they, they all have lucky and unlucky events that happen to them, except when it happened to good companies, they would double down on whatever that event was and uh, get the most out of that. And then when bad things happened to good companies, the good companies were prepared to deal with or more prepared than the not-so-good companies to deal with that bad luck. But the same amount of good luck or bad luck happens to all companies and all people. Do you remember when we were kids that show Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous? Yeah, and like you, you became a very rich and famous person, right? I mean, so so did it change the way you live your life? I mean, right now I live in an airstream, which uh, like a like a trailer, yeah. like a hundred and fifty square feet type of thing. Yeah, we've got dogs running around, kids running around. We actually have two alpacas running around. So, <laughs> uh, and I just love it because there's just so many random, uh, amazing things that happen around the campfire. Now you just go outside. And I, I actually think of it as the world's largest living room. Hmm. And I guess for me, I've always, I, like I'm willing to pay for experiences, but not really for things. Yeah. J and just because experiences, I think I realized a, a while ago, are what make me happy. And I, it's funny because I was literally this morning uh, having coffee with a friend of mine in, in the Airstream. And we were talking about, I think it was a quiz or something, where the question was, if you if your house was on fire and you could only save one thing from your house, what would it be? And how that would be a really good way of getting to know someone. And I was just looking around my Airstream and it was like, I don't know, my, my phone maybe? <laughs> and sometimes people ask me what my definition of success is. And I would say, for me, it's getting to the point where you're truly okay with losing everything you have. Hmm. 
That's Tony Shea, the co-founder and longtime head of Zappos. He died this past week at age 46. By the way, Tony had an interesting way of dealing with his introversion. He forced himself to do one uncomfortable thing every single day. And on the day I interviewed him, three years ago, he dyed his hair bright red and spiked it up into a mohawk just because it made him uncomfortable. What does it take to start something from nothing? And what does it take to actually build it? I'm Guy Raz. Every week on How I Built This, I speak with founders behind some of the most inspiring companies in the world. NPR's How I Built This, listen now.